Today, we talk with Liza Featherstone about a huge victory for eco-socialists and for everybody, actually, in New York that came with the passage of a bold piece of legislation, the Build Public ERA. Featherstone explains the genesis of the bill and the specific work that activists put into its passage. She talks about the obstacles they confronted, how they worked together to overcome those obstacles, and how other environmental activists can learn from this historic moment. Speaking Out of Place is produced in collaboration with the creative process and is made with support from Stanford University. I alone am responsible for its content. Liza, to begin with, congratulations. It's not often you have a major victory like this. I want to start by telling our listeners to check out this amazing article that you did and what we're going to be talking off of a lot. It came out in these times, and the title is New York Socialists Win Big on Climate. How did it happen? And the article went viral. Naomi Klein picked it up, and it went even more viral. And let's start with you telling us, how did it happen? Walk us through the article, and if you want, since we have ample time, elaborate on any point that you didn't get to fit into the article. Sure. Thank you so much, David. So the big victory was that in New York State, we have passed the Build Public Renewables Act, which mandates and requires the New York State Power Authority to build its own publicly funded renewables, renewable energy, wind and solar. And this was a long, long, hard fought victory. And to say how it happened, we need to think back to the early Bernie days, just after the Bernie Sanders 2016 presidential campaign. Obviously, people were very disappointed that Bernie Sanders didn't win, but a lot of people were also very politicized by that campaign and by that moment. And so a lot of people were joining DSA, Democratic Socialists of America. At the same time, a lot of young people were becoming very aware and very anxious and disturbed and deeply depressed by the climate crisis. And that's around that time that we started to see much more media coverage of reports from the climate experts on what climate crisis meant, what the implications could be for all of life on Earth. And people just started taking it a lot more seriously. And a number of developments in New York politics were happening at that time. Major groups, democratic socialists, also relatedly, we ousted some of our most conservative democratic state legislatures, a group called the Independent Democratic Caucus. Just like that classic thing where the name is the opposite of what it is. I love the way that it's disappeared from the lexicon, too. I mean, yeah, it couldn't even remember it. And that's partly like my own cognitive decline. But it really is because we just don't talk about them anymore, which is beautiful. So the Independent Democratic Caucus may it rest in peace in a series of really lively local elections in 2018. And a lot of much more progressive legislators came in their place. And around that same time, Julia Salazar, a member of Democratic Socialists and a very serious socialist organizer, 
was elected at that same time. She didn't actually oust an IDC member, but she ousted another bad Democrat. There were so many. And there still are you know, bad conservative Democrats who are serving the moneyed class rather than the working people. And so Julia Salazar came into office and with a slightly better legislature. At the same time, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was elected to Congress that year. And all of these events started to expand people's sense that winning things was possible, winning things mm -hmm. through organizing. But also AOC did a tremendous thing by articulating the vision of the Green New Deal. Because if you remember, before that time, the right and, and even the mainstream could easily pose the struggles of working class people in opposition to environmental causes. The idea that those two things were in almost naturally yep. intention was a, a, like a pillar of mainstream discourse, like that the right was mm -hmm. particularly good at capitalizing on, but that was easily taken up by, by the mainstream. And so the Green New Deal as a concept really challenged that and allowed many people to much more concretely picture how we could design an economic future that could work for everyday people and also for the planet. At the same time, it also took the environmental movement out of this place of just fighting on really small terrain, just one butterfly species at a time, yeah. which is like that kind of work is so important. But AOC herself used a great phrase when she first started talking about the Green New Deal, a solution that is at the mm -hmm. scale of the problem. And so the Green New Deal was really the first time that a U.S. politician in office had articulated like a, a vision of a solution that was at the scale of the problem. All of this was coming together in that moment. And so Democratic socialist activists who were concerned about climate started to just say, OK, we know that socialists can organize on labor. We know that socialists can organize on housing. What would a socialist climate campaign look like? And what could we demand in this moment that we could reasonably win? And people started talking about a lot of different ideas, but there was a big risk of going either too big or too small. Because remember, despite all the great things I've just described, Trump was president. So that was a real piece of the reality of the political landscape. And on the other hand, asking for something too small could squander all this power that they were building. You could win something that was a small scale, but how would it make use of this emerging socialist power and also of this emerging interest in socialist idea? So people began talking about the idea of publicly owned power. And the idea really began to have a lot of traction, both from an economic justice perspective and in terms of climate. Many people that sort utility bills are a huge source of economic stress for many working families. The unreliability of the grid, especially with more and more climate-related natural disasters, is a huge problem for people. But also, we need alternatives to fossil fuels, and it's becoming very obvious that we can't count on the capitalist system to produce these alternatives fast enough. I was impressed by the idea of the scale and the ask and the questions that you were facing. And 
I was really impressed by how people looked at different models, what other yeah. people were doing in different ways to try to see the fit. They did look at other models. There was a campaign in Providence, Rhode Island, with a very catchy name, Nationalized Grid, because the company that provided the power was the National Grid. And that was an important inspiration, not because it was something that had really worked or succeeded, but just in terms of people thinking, oh, that's a good idea. And in terms of organizing and thinking about how to win socialist victories, after a while, there was a good model in that New York State housing advocates and socialists in a big coalition led in the legislature by Julia Salazar, the Democratic Socialist State Senator, had won a tremendous package of renter protections in 2019. And so the way that they had done that with this sort of combination of an inside and an outside strategy and calling the legislators, but also protesting and all of those things. There was a blueprint in that sense of this is how we take on serious things that look hard and win. But the Providence essay nationalized grid was the inspiration in terms of the idea. They actually haven't socialized their grid in Providence yet. It's a big lift, but they certainly did a good job of inspiring others. You know? yeah. So they settled on the scale. They started working with elected representatives. They started knocking on doors, mm -hmm. so impressed by the energy. Mm -hmm. And no stone unturned type of thing. Yeah, they really tried everything. And a lot of times on the left, people will get really dogmatic about particular focuses and feel really strongly that there's only one way. One of the things that was interesting about this story to me was that the big question was what will work and when something didn't work they would pivot and try something else. That is such a sensible way of doing things. So one of the things that had been very effective in previous campaigns in 2020, and I, I was part of this during the pandemic days, there was a lot of successful organizing on a campaign called Tax the Rich. And we did win a lot more taxes on the rich and a a, a much more progressive budget than New York State had seen in years. So that was on a similar model to the renters' rights campaign. One of the things that was really effective in those campaigns was all the canvassing and the phone banking was focused on getting people to call their representatives. And that really worked because the level of political engagement in New York State had been so low for years mm -hmm. that when they were getting a lot of calls on issues, they were really freaked out. <laughs> it was so surprising to them that the public was at all engaged. They thought, whoa, we better do something. But then by the time of this campaign of build public renewables, they had become jaded and accustomed to constituents calling them an issue. And so they were like, okay. So it just didn't have anywhere near the impact that it had in those first mm -hmm. two campaigns. They had just really gotten jaded and figured it out and just let the calls go to voicemail. So that was one example where DSA had to pivot and say, I guess this really isn't working. We have to think of something else. And often some people on the left will be like, Labor is the only thing that matters. All mm. that matters is labor unions. In fact, labor unions were really important here and forming relationships with unions, talking with them about why they did or didn't want to endorse this bill. Ultimately, the labor provisions were written by the New York AFL-CIO and even many unions that didn't endorse the bills explicitly 
had a lot of input into it and helped to make it a more as labor friendly a bill as it could be. And the fact that some unions did endorse it really turned around a lot of the Democratic legislators because a lot of them will do whatever the unions, which is a nice thing about New York politics. Ultimately, it can sometimes be a problem when we're advocating for something that is just that the unions think is just too pie in the sky. But it it does help to have a a somewhat more civilized society when unions are listened to. It's so important because... It was a really a breakthrough moment. And you mentioned at the top of the show exactly the opposition between labor yes. and, and environment and yes. the way the neoliberals just exploit the hell out of that. And so uh, wonderful kind of roadblock. And another uh, moment was the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act that, again, gave activists kind of a gift. So that, that piece of legislation was interesting because it was one of these typical, somewhat nice sounding, but meaningless in the sense of having no teeth pieces of legislation. And a lot of people, myself included, were pretty cynical about it at the time. It's sort of like how the UN is always issuing mm. these sustainable development goals. You just almost wonder if these things do more harm than good at times. But then the way that the socialists and the coalition were able to use that legislation was to say, look, this legislation sets these targets for reducing our carbon emissions. And if we don't build public renewables, New York State will be violating its own law. Yeah, because otherwise it would be, as you say, pretty useless, but it serves as a lever for this. And I I was laughing when you mentioned the UN because I, I taped a show a couple of days ago with the graduate students here who are fighting our school of sustainability taking fossil fuel money. The day that we taped it, New York Times, and I'm sure you saw this, it's hilarious, I have it on my screen. The headline in New York Times is, meet the oil man in charge of leading the world economy away from oil. So Sultan <laughs> Al-Jabber, an energy executive leading this year's Global Climate Summit, says fossil fuel companies are key to the world's energy transition. Some disagree. <laughs> so he has this renewable energy company called Mazdar, but then he also directs an Adnoc, which makes, as they say, Mazdar look minuscule. So much Definitely. tactic is obfuscation, delay, greenwashing. And yep. so if they don't fight you head on, what they'll do is divert people's attention away. And yes. I think what this campaign did is it focused like a yeah. laser mm-hmm. on these issues. And it really brought it into relief in an inescapable way. Because as yes. you were saying, we're talking about people's utility bills. Yeah, you, know, you, you can't blow yeah. that off, right? No. So. Could you talk a little bit about how it hit a nerve, obviously, in people and, and well, how the campaign was able to bring it home yeah. out of the atmosphere, so to speak? Yeah. So at, at one point, the coalition asked a sympathetic legislator, "What is it better to try to bring these people on board and make them our friends or would it be better to go negative? And the senator said, negativity is always better. It's always more effective. And so one of the things they did was really research with the legislators that were holding up or standing in the way of build public renewables. They really researched their fossil fuel contributions and to what extent these people were really beholden to that industry, made big signs. They were very funny signs. I remember they were in the form of a Venmo and where they would have the person's name and this sort of format of a Venmo. And people were horrified because it is very unusual in Albany politics for people to be called out that way and that specifically on their campaign donations and people who are saying that they're on your side. 
side and support you, but they aren't because they're not introducing your legislation. They're not passing your legislation. And by the way, this is something we see in the labor movement again and again as well, where we make so much efforts to be friends with politicians and then they will just back off what they have said they would do at the last minute. So that was shocking and started to get a lot more media attention. But then this sort of next stage was, okay, so we're going negative and people are mad, but how do we make them afraid? Because it's good to make people mad, but it's better to make them afraid. For those of you who haven't read the article yet, the subhead is making them fear you. It gets to the point, and you talk about marrying the bill's main sponsor. Can you talk about that? It was like as not a Sierra Club move. So it's great. That was one of the coalition's most controversial moves. Uh, Kevin Parker was on the energy committee, longtime office holder, and just, yeah, longtime state senator. Really a piece of work, this guy. A number of years ago, City and State, which is a magazine that covers all of our sort of city and state politics, had a roundup of all the sort of violent incidents he'd been involved in, just threatening a female reporter, getting into an altercation with someone over a parking spot. Just like he's politically bad, but he's also like a real jerk. And so he's someone who is a bit feared in the legislature. He was the head of the Energy Committee. And because of that, he was the logical choice to be the bill's lead sponsor, or he offered to do it. And at that time, the activists didn't have enough experience to necessarily question why he would be offering to be the sponsor. And as it turned out, he was just never introducing it, never doing anything to uh, move it forward. And so they started to realize, okay, this guy is not with us, like he's against us, and started looking into his fossil fuel donations and the extent to which he was really beholden to this industry and was heading the energy committee to serve them rather than to serve the people of Flatbush, Brooklyn, which is the neighborhood he represents. So the DSA decided to primary him. It was a very controversial and much debated decision within the organization and with their allies in the coalition. But it turned out to be the right move. David Alexis was a very compelling rideshare driver organizer and an environmental activist. Both of his children have asthma. He lives in the the Flatbush neighborhood where there is a lot of pollution. And he didn't win, but it was a really good campaign that really alarmed Kevin Parker. Kevin Parker did end up introducing the bill after years of inaction, using basically the socialist talking points about how important it was that we meet our targets. And there's no other way we're going to meet our targets without passing this bill. And another real success of the electoral strategy was Sarah Hanna Sreshtha, a socialist environmental activist in the Hudson Valley, but challenged another longtime legislator and also somebody who was thought of as a friend of the environmental movement, but was not doing anything to advance the Build Public Renewables Act or any other serious climate legislation. And people in the Hudson Valley were tremendously hurting with their utility bills. They have a particularly terrible utility company there. And Sarah Hanna's campaign was 
an incredibly hardworking campaign. They knocked on doors tirelessly. She won and all of the socialist elected people did things to champion this bill, but she was its absolutely its most committed champion. She worked so hard. And I think also just really showed people that it was possible. There was a lot of skepticism in terms of whether you could win a mm. campaign really making a, a climate issue your big issue, because there was so much conventional wisdom from Democrats and also from many socialists that people just don't care enough about the climate. It doesn't affect people materially. And Sarah Hanna, as an organizer, as well as a candidate, really showed that wasn't true. Well, you talk about the skepticism about climate change and whether it was <laughs> issue. And I was just reading John Bellamy Foster's book, The Return of Nature, yeah. which lays yeah. out like 700 pages of socialists yeah. who were yeah. committed to the idea that it was a socialist issue. And oh, yeah, the I mean, the, the people. Yes, um, he's been on this for a long time. Yeah. Many other very smart socialists. Yeah. And we see even going back to Marx, it talks about the environment and the way that capitalism ravages the mm -hmm. natural environment. We have known this for a long time, but, but we just have to keep relearning things. And consistent with your principles, right? Tell us how you took on the governor. Yeah. So the governor, that was a very interesting thing because she came in office because Andrew Cuomo, our previous governor, was driven out by charges of sexual harassment. There's just so much wrong with this guy. He's mm -hmm. responsible for like Tens of thousands of New Yorkers died in nursing homes at the beginning of COVID due to his negligence. But any reason for getting rid of him is good. There were so many reasons and the reason of the zeitgeist happened to line up with his political misfortunes. And so he was gone. That really changed a lot of dynamics in Albany because people really feared him and feared that he would take revenge on them for any political opposition. And while the left was able to win some things, even while he was governor, it was always a big constraint. And Kathy Hochul, his deputy who replaced him, has not really been much more progressive, but people aren't as afraid of her and she doesn't wield the same kind of power. And she nearly won her re-election. It wasn't really that narrow, but the polling was very close. And so, of course, as Democrats sometimes do, she took all the wrong messages from that. Instead of thinking like it was probably the left organizations that got out there and knocked on doors and saved her at the last minute of it, she assumed that the reason that she had almost lost was that she didn't tack far right enough. And so the whole experience left her very cautious and even more middle of the road than she had been, especially on criminal justice issues. Something that was interesting was criminal justice issues so dominated the discourse that in a way, some other issues were able to fly under the radar a bit mm -hmm. and I think seemed less consequential to the governor mm -hmm. as things that she could concede to the left. So I think that was part of it. She really wanted to beat us back on things like bail reform mm -hmm. because that were being so um, extensively covered by the right wing tabloids. But it's not like the right-wing tabloids were every day writing about the Build Public Renew Act. <laughs> it's boring if you don't care about it. And so I think that's partly why there was a, a little nice. bit of maneuverability there in May. She introduced her watered-down version of the Build Public Renewables Act, one that had 
with the labor provisions stripped out and also with the environmental justice provisions stripped out. So it's just like a horrifying attack on the coalition and the relationships. And that's a really common tactic of people in power is to attack the activists' own relationships by coming up with compromises that will divide them. And it's one thing to have a compromise that is not all that you want. We're just going to partly fund the thing that you're asking for or whatever. But it's another thing to offer a compromise that really divides you from your friends. And so the reaction from the socialists was just, this is not acceptable. We did not spend all this time campaigning for a bill that would have no labor protections. And we certainly also didn't intend to pass one that left the polluting plants in black and brown neighborhoods. That was just also not acceptable. Her compromise was rejected. And instead, they put up a huge billboard in Albany comparing the popularity of the Build Public Renewables Act to Kathy Ogle's own popularity. And the, you know, the publicly funded renewable energy is much more popular than the governor and just rejected the whole idea of compromising in the way that she was proposing. And that, too, was a departure from business as usual, because it's pretty conventional in state politics in New York. And I think this is really true everywhere to when you get something. be like, okay, we got something, we have a partial victory. And it's always really important to be able to tell the difference between an acceptable compromise and an unacceptable one. I remember years ago interviewing Jenny Brown, a reproductive rights organizer, on how they won the morning after pill. The Obama administration had offered that it wouldn't be available to anyone under 18. And they were just like, but we have activists in our coalition who are young people who are fighting for this. You can't throw your people under the, like, that's not an acceptable type of compromise when you have to throw your own people under the bus. And this was a similar situation. So they refused to. And in the end, they got just about everything that they had asked for. Just to cite the figure on the billboard, which I think is hilarious, 68% of New Yorkers supported BPRA only 52% voted for the governor. Yeah, so pretty we, we do matter. Yeah, <laughs> they really do. Most of the time, yeah. just blow them off. But here yeah. it was graphic. And it's what I love about it is it publicizes that disparity. Right? Yeah, because otherwise, yes. the people with the media platforms, i.e. the governors, they'll invisibilize that or they'll... Right, you know, yeah. When, you, when people know stuff, it can be dangerous. Yes. And that's something else that I should say that I think that I didn't highlight enough in the article, but the communication and public, like the sort of ability of this group to really communicate and get across the key information in this fight in ways that were accessible and inviting were very impressive. I overcorrect sometimes because as a media person, I'm Mm. just like, communications is just only one thing. There are so many other aspects of of successful organizing, but they really were phenomenal communicators and people really developed skills like that in the process. Absolutely. Something that I would just like to say a little bit more about to your audience that is in the article, but that I just think is really interesting is there was also a tremendous ability to build on the moment in ways that I think some on the left were just really not doing or opportunities that others were not seizing. For instance, another important thing that happened was the Inflation Reduction Act passed. And what a lot of people on the left were focusing on was 
Build Back Better didn't happen and Joe Manchin just wrecked it. But there was actually a lot in the Inflation Reduction Act. And just as importantly as what was in there was the potential to build on what was in there. So, for example, there's a lot of provision in there for states and localities to get funding for building their own renewable energy. And so, again, it changed the political terrain because they were able to make the argument to their fellow legislators that by not doing this, we're leaving money on the table. Like there's this federal money and New York State won't get it if we don't create a way to build public renewables. So that was really interesting to me. But then also what's really cool is that other places, other types of public entities, just even like municipalities are realizing that they can do the same thing. And that creates a really great possibility for more campaigns everywhere demanding public power in a variety of ways. And so because the Inflation Reduction Act has all this money for that. And most people just don't even really know what's in it because it's such a long piece of legislation. And there's like a lot of focus on the things in it that are bad and there are some things in it that are bad, but there's also like just quite a lot to build on there. So now people are working on building public renewables in a lot of other places, potentially looking at municipalizing public utilities, all mm -hmm. kinds of things that could be really exciting. Yeah, no, I think that's such an important point because it's, it's so easy to become really cynical. And at a certain point, you start shooting yourself in the foot if you, if you just discard things that whole cloth. One thing I'd like to end on, perhaps, is that early in the broadcast, you were describing the kind of skepticism or apathy about climate change. And you said something, characterizing somebody saying, who cares? And that brought me back to how we ended our last conversation on this podcast about a culture of care. And I think what was so important about this campaign, let alone its success, which was the display of actual care. Could you talk about how, how you see this perhaps as reinvigorating and reanimating and nurturing the kinds of things you were asking about last time you and I talked? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think there's this situation where, you know, as people were becoming more aware of climate change and you can become incredibly depressed and alienated thinking about that. And on the other hand, you can also look at your community with love and decide to do something to help save it. And I think this campaign and these relationships and these coalitions were really uh, such a great example of people really acting out of care. And it's really hard to do this kind of work. And people were just really able to stand up and uh, stick with it. I think as one of the socialists quoted in the article said, working on climate makes you crazy in a really specific kind of way. And he meant because it is an existential threat mm. to so much that we love and value. And for some people, it is able to really focus them in a very productive way. Let me give the name, which is New York Socialists won big on climate. How did it happen? It's in these times. And Liza, thank you so much for visiting again. And thank you for this tremendous article and bringing it out into the world. Oh, thank you so much, David. I really appreciate it. And I should add, the article is in the socialism issue of In These Times. And okay. there's a lot of really great stuff in there. Kiana Yamada Taylor is in there. And my friend Emily Dravinsky, who's the socialist head of the American Library Association. 
please take a moment to like this episode and subscribe to this podcast. This will help bring it to other people's attentions. You might also follow me on Twitter at Palumbo Liu and let us know about any subjects you would like us to cover or people or groups you'd like us to interview.